Hey everyone, welcome to Let's Get Real with Sandra and Friends, a workplace consortium podcast brought to you by Relogix. I'm excited to be sharing conversational musings about current events and how we envision the ever-changing world of work. I'm Sandra Panera, Director of Workplace Insights at Relogix. With 25 years of hands-on experience, I help value engineer global workplace portfolios and employee experiences by aligning workplace analytics with corporate real estate needs. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions for future podcasts? Please drop me a line at podcast at relogics.com. Today's guest is Kevin Sauer, a workplace strategy and technology leader with more than 20 years of experience in building high-performing workplace strategy programs for Fortune 500 companies. Kevin is passionate about understanding the impact of emerging and innovative technologies, people strategies, and space usage on the changing nature of work. Kevin's expertise includes developing Amazon's workplace intelligence program to uncover new patterns and practices and their impact on the changing workplace. He has also held workplace strategy roles at GE, HP, and Microsoft. Kevin's diverse background in research, design, and business gives him a unique perspective and valuable insights. We're thrilled to have Kevin on the show today to share his experiences and knowledge with our listeners. Hey, Kevin. Very happy to have you as a guest today. I know we've interacted in the past on many occasions. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, thank you for inviting me, Sandra. Yeah, I've been in workplace strategy for 20 plus years now, all with large technology companies and largely focused on kind of global workplace and workplace experience. So that's kind of been um, the area that I focused on of what's that discovery and research. And as you know, things have changed dramatically in the last few years. But a lot of the things that we've been discussing for those past 20 years are now kind of coming to fruition. And the next step is what happens next? What, uh, how do we inform the future and how do we actually um, understand what we want to do next? So you have been on the inside. Um, so even though obviously working in workplace strategy, but you've been in a corporate real estate team. Uh, what are some of the challenges that you've faced over the last you know, three years from that perspective? Part of the biggest challenge is really trying to level set on a data-based approach. And initially, just I mean, the things we're gathering is um, badge data, utilization data, things like that. And inevitably, um, C-suite seems to think, well, if you're in a high-attending company, that means people are coming in all the time. And getting that first baseline of qualifying what a high-attending company means, it means that you're getting um, upwards of 80, 82% of the people would come in um, in my case, it was we're seeing it Monday through Thursday pre-pandemic. Uh, but when you back away and look at kind of the course of a year, there's seasonality, there's different business cycles. And so what you find is that the reality is over the course of a year, the average days in the office are really three to four. So it's not five days a week. There's a very small percentage that regularly show up five days a week. And when you factor in vacation and travel and all the things that happen, makes perfect sense, but it's tough to bring that elevate to the C-suite level. So they start with the understanding of people were already working a certain degree away from the office, and that's continued to trend downward over years. This happens to be just a, a larger correction just during the pandemic. It's interesting um, when you say about, you know, uh, being a high attending company, because certainly there's been a lot of focus on occupancy or some like to call it attendance. <laughs> Um, you know, in the workplace, uh, what about when it comes to planning, right? So you've got occupancy, which is just how many people are actually coming into the office every day versus the actual activities that are occurring within 
the organization. Were you leaning more towards one versus the other? And, and kind of how did you use the, the different data points? Uh, really focused on kind of the utilization side of what's being used by how many people for how long. So sensors are critical in that to really get that fine-tuned understanding of what's happening now, how's that changing over time, so that you can start to understand Yep, we actually see meeting sizes, particularly in the U.S., getting much smaller. And so we don't need lots of large meeting rooms, um, particularly um, after the pandemic. Most people find it's more equitable if you do those from home or elsewhere and you all dial in, have kind of that same setting. So when you come to the office, you're looking for those smaller spaces where you convene with two or three people. And so trying to understand how often that happens, um, when do you run out of space, and comparing that to attendance, um, occupancy, and utilization to kind of triangulate when and where do you need this space, how often, and what what degree of kind of um, discomfort are you willing to accept for those peak days, um, particularly right now, Tuesday through Thursday, can you average that out so you're not oversubscribing the space or undersubscribing, you just kind of try to allocate people and they, that attendance pattern continues to change. When you said before about like, you know, the fact that people come in, you know, on average two to three days a week, uh, that's kind of been a, a pattern that existed long before the pandemic. It kind of begs the question how much actually changed during the pandemic other than it formalized a behavior that already existed, right? But when you think about the changes that are uh, required within the office, the use, the fluctuation that is happening now on a day-to-day basis because everybody's looking at the data, how do you plan for that? Like how much fluctuation did you see on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? And how do you think about planning for those fluctuations? I think the simple answer is it's still in question. Um, that fluctuation is significantly different than pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, you could pretty much count on a weekly cycle of when people would come in. They kind of had their typical weekly pattern. Post-pandemic, um, you see many more people that come in sporadically or once or twice a month. And so there isn't that week-to-week um, consistency. And so when I was tracking more recently, we were seeing, you know, 70 to 80 percent of the people would attend at least the office one day a week during a month. When you step down to a week, you'd see that um, be about half. Right. So from an experience perspective, what that means is when you come in the office, you're not seeing the same people as you did before. You're seeing a completely different mix and there's no regularity or kind of pattern to it. So it means your experience is different every day you come in. And also helps inform what happens and next time or when you decide to come in next time. And it's really challenging to understand what that looks like now. So um, the goal is really to kind of trend that over time and see do people start to settle into more of a typical pattern as a kind of a flat line where you're seeing things stabilize. And, of course, it's going to take um, a fair bit of time to um, kind of reform new habits after we've all kind of gotten comfortable over the last three years and a new habit, and now we've got to try to think about now there's more choice and opportunity. What does that look like? And um, you pair that up with what your team is doing and what others in the office are doing. Yeah. What about with respect to, you know, when you were saying about the fact that you're essentially bringing information forward to your executives, was there an aha? Like, were they surprised to hear that people were only coming in the office three days a week? Or what was their reaction? I think so, but then it really jumped back to, well, we still really need people back in the office because um, that's the best place for them to be. So it wasn't 
backed by data and research. I mean, there's there's been a lot of white papers over time that talk about the amount of time you need to get together. And certainly coming out of the pandemic, it's it's really focused on there has to be a purpose. And I think that's been echoed by a lot of companies that would provide a free lunch and they'd see a spike in attendance during the noon hour. And that was it. So certain amenities and things that were kind of a big um, kind of a big ticket item with companies pre-pandemic have gone away. And it's really trying to think about from a management perspective, when do I need to get people in the office and how do I get them all there? And then how does that become a great experience you want to replicate? And executives struggle with that because it's not a one size fits all. It comes yeah. down to every team um, kind of creating their own strategy around what works best for their team, for the product or service they're working on. And that's really hard to control and trust that each manager or each director is really going to have the company's best interests at heart versus trying to make sure they don't lose talent or concerns that we're losing talent. So the default is, well, if we, if we force kind of a standard and allow some flexibility around that, we'll get to what we want. Yeah, it's it's certainly interesting around the fact that a lot of companies are doing that where they're leaving it to the individual teams, managers to basically decide within the parameters of whatever that new policy is for flexible work that, you know, they're trying to basically rally their team together. I often wonder, though, is that, you know, I mean, obviously, if you're directly managing a team on a day to day basis, then that would probably be something that you would be participating in in terms of encouraging the team camaraderie, whether it's getting together or however it is that you do that work. But I often wonder, it's kind of like, is that really the role that management should be playing? It almost feels like as of late, it's like we've all become autonomous beings and Mm -hmm. that, you know, we know who we work with on a day to day basis and we make the decision ourselves with respect to what is the most productive use of our time which is, again, you have to consider the team as well. I've heard that many, many times as well. But it's almost like the team the team aspect seems to be a lot more forgiving because there's that human element in it versus it's all about business. What, what are your thoughts in yeah. that regard? I agree. And that's actually it's one area where HR really stepped up to the plate and said, let's not focus on individuals because individuals change and individuals have their own preferences and it may or may not suit the team. And so the focus is really... Let's think about how the team works, what enables them best, and the manager is in the best position to kind of determine what that looks like. Um, I think where kind of the next step is, is develop some more training around how managers think about what's really critical to their team coming together, how their work is actually spent, what portions of the day they need to do that, so they can actually think strategically about bringing people together setting kind of a clear agenda on what is it we're going to do, who's playing what part, how do you need to prepare, so that there is some kind of build-up and excitement around, yep, let's get together and get some good work done, and then we'll go back and start working on our individual pieces of the project. So let's let's shift gears a little bit. I know just in working with you in the past, um, you know, having some insights in terms of some of the work that you were doing, um, there was some stuff that was happening on sort of the – Fact-finding, design sort of aspect, which is top of mind to a lot of organizations right now as they're rethinking their space. How did you go about basically collecting the data? Like what, what, were, what were the steps that you took to get at good data? 
Yeah, a couple different approaches. Um, first step is just what was commonly available, which is badge data. And um, the benefit we had is uh, we actually, security put in badge readers on the way out. So we could actually get badge in, badge out. So we could look at dwell times and kind of rule out some of the theories that people only come in for the free lunch or to have a meeting and then they go home. What we actually found is, no, people made the trip into the office. They were there for a full day, and there was a fairly large curve on that. So we also saw younger employees that took the offices. This is also my social space and would stay much longer than kind of your eight, nine-hour day. Fewer people would actually show up just for that short period of time. So that was the first step was getting um, the attendance data just to kind of figure out of those assigned who's coming in, actually where they're coming into. Are they coming into the assigned building or are they just coming into the closest or most convenient office building? And there was a lot of shif- shuffling around that depending on type of building where the team is going to be. So the next step was looking at how is the space being used when they come in? So using a mix of sensors as well as um, traditional time utilization studies, walk-arounds, so you understand what, what type of activity is actually happening. And then um, the last piece is really doing a bit of surveying to understand what's getting in the way of people coming to the office and how they actually want to spend their time. Once we kind of blended that, uh, it was an opportunity to go back and have some focus groups to make sure that this, what we thought the data meant was actually what employees were trying to express um, in the surveys and kind of their access. So it was a good way to at least start to build a story of, what's happening now, what's missing. And I think there's been some good um, industry surveys that um, really kind of pulled this apart and found that, yeah, there is a trend towards uh, the most innovative companies and people within those wanting to come to the office more of the time, but they're not there today. So there's still barriers, commute, and other things that are getting in the way. And so is technology. So there's a lot of opportunity to to start at least um, listing out Here's things to work on and continue to measure. So when you were talking about the data, were you looking at those data sources individually or were you actually integrating those data sets together? It was a bit of both. I mean, the first step was just make sure that the data navigations were correct. You're actually getting accurate data and you're thinking through how to humanize the data. So when you're looking at badge data, ensuring that did you strip out people that are on maternity leave or long-term care or maybe started or ended um, their employment during the week or the um, time that you're evaluating. So you're looking at what's the typical employee profile. So it's a clear image of here's what the normalized um, population is doing. Get that correct. Go to the next bucket. Look at utilization. Test it out. Make sure that um, you're getting the right data, that there's not errors or gaps in what's being um, assembled there, and then start putting that together. That's that's really the foundational piece. The the more insightful areas when you start rolling in some of that talent data, and that's where the people experience team becomes really important because they can look at a lot deeper um, elements around. As we think about DEI, are we addressing the needs of all the kind of core demographics of the company? Are there things that we need to separate out so it isn't a one size fits all that we start to think about it in buckets? that are more manageable and focused on populations we're getting at. And they're also able to look at um, uh, zip code analysis. So there was a big shift pre-pandemic. There was a lot of employees that were proximate to the campus. So they regularly attended a lot of dispersion um, post-pandemic. And so when you think about companies are saying, come back, it's like, well, we have employees that have moved far away. 
it's not possible for them to come back because they've gone to places where they can hold a lifestyle. Housing is less expensive. Maybe it's close to family and the commute is greater than what you can do. So now it becomes a business trip and you're not going to take a business trip every week. Yeah. It's it's interesting that I like what you said about the, the fact of humanizing the data, because that I think sums it up really, really nicely in the sense that when you talk to people about just data in general, people sort of shy away from it because it's like, oh, it's, you know, quantitative data. It's not qualitative. It doesn't really tell you much about people. But I think, as you just described, is when you start to bring in context and you're able to marry up different data sources together to sort of understand the attributes of the people behind this data, right, mm-hmm. of learning, like, who are these people, where did they live, um, you know, different things about the type of job that they do, the teams that they belong to. There's some really interesting things that bubble up when you start to look at the data from that point of view. Now, having said that, it doesn't replace or it can't be exclusive of the true qualitative data, which is understanding other things that won't necessarily come up by looking at numbers that come from a sensor or from a a badge swipe of any kind. Um, That's really just kind of understanding more of the thinking of like, where is your head at in terms of, you know, what is happening in in the marketplace right now? And like you just described, as the people moved away, yeah, you can see that in a postal code that, hey, the person lived here and now they're 20, you know, miles further away from the office. So the likelihood of them coming back to the office is probably not likely because they've moved they've moved further away. Um, so I really I really like that that uh, that term. I'm gonna I'm gonna borrow it. <laughs> um, so from a, from an analytics point of view, did you guys do all the analytics in house, or did you? And was it in the corporate real estate team, or did you have a an external team that was doing that for you? No, just from a privacy and compliance perspective, um, we're highly sensitive to both kind of real and perceived issues around gathering this type of data. And that's one of the areas where you have good data sources, but when you start to cleanse them and make sure you're providing privacy, you're stepping away from individuals and getting at team, uh, team level. And so you have to take in multiple data sources to then get back to kind of a, a really tight data set. Um, and it makes sure you're not identifying people in it. And so we did all of that in-house. Um, we did some consultation externally, but we wouldn't send anything out that even had an email alias attached to it yeah. um, just to maintain that privacy. So it was more a consultation of how were other people thinking about um, kind of blending data and looking for different patterns that emerge out of that. And that was kind of uh, mostly done within the uh, real estate and facilities organization. Well, I say there was some good partnership uh, with people experience and they would start to look at different things of how are people using video collaboration and, and some messaging and trying to tie that back to talent analytics and finding that high performing employees connect with more people more often. So common sense. But then you start to say, oh, OK, is there a correlation between high performers and time spent in the office versus home? Falls apart. It's all over the map. So people are people. Their, their situations are all different and they're going to choose the environment that supports them best, but that doesn't necessarily take away from whether they're high performing or not. Yeah. And I think that that point that you made about, you know, the correlation or trying to make a correlation between high performing and, you know, whether or not they're in the office more or less, it reminds me of a, a, a an example in my past years as well, where there was people that were saying 
trying to say that people that were in the office were more productive. And so there was a theory floating around that that was the case, that if you, your manager and your team was in the same city because we were a national company and it was like that somehow those people were more productive. And so it was to the company's disadvantage if your manager was in one province and your employee was in another. And I was like, I wonder if that's true. So, so sure enough, you know, went in and did that. And I was like, no, it's not, that's not true at all. Cause it is, it's all over the place. It's a very, very personal thing. And there is no correlation to that. Right. So, and, and you saw in fact that, you know, you had both instances actually occurring, but I think the other thing that's interesting about this all is the fact of privacy. So it, I find it interesting that in organizations, even within the organization itself, there's still concerns about privacy. And when you start to strip data away, uh, because obviously you're trying to maintain, you know, an element of privacy from a user or employee perspective, how does that help or hinder when you're trying to then bring this information to your management team or your executive team? Because how do you execute on generic information or execute well? well let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I think it's uh, the key thing is trying to find the right um kind of attributes to filter on. So different job functions, different teams. Uh, so we're just talking about uh, certain teams. I can think about a marketing and advertising team. They often want to be in the office more because they can put things on the board. They can critique it in real time, move very quickly. We're finding a lot of the software developers want that perfect ergonomic setup. They can do that better at home. They can also um, control privacy. So it kind of shifts that. So trying to bring that back to leadership, um, one, you you always get a few leaders that say, gee, I, I really need to know how my people are coming in, and they want to do it from a a more personal uh, approach to who's not coming in my team. So we we actually went above and beyond kind of GDPR rules and said we won't show you um, a population less than 10 because we want the data to be used for good, not for kind of negative purposes, and focus on that particularly in tech companies are growing quickly your team dynamics change so radically over um, just weeks, months, years, trying to stay above and see what's the consistent level of detail that we can kind of plan for and trend. Whereas you get too, um, too granular around different teams or individuals, that's going to change dramatically. And so you're, you're telling a story that can't be replicated potentially. Right. And I think that that's true. The granularity certainly shows you the fluctuation and just kind of how volatile the use of space is and how it changes. Like, I mean, we I'm just in the process of finalizing our next benchmarking report, which I think is coming out later this week, I believe on Thursday. And so looking back, uh, that was one of the ahas for me in particular, where if you're trending data on a, a weekly, monthly, quarterly and even annual basis, I mean, yeah, it sort of shows you directionally where it's going, but then you, you don't plan based on weekly, monthly values because there's missed insights that you wouldn't get at that level. You actually have to go down right to the lowest level to understand, well, what's actually happening? How often is that kind of activity occurring? And so that allows you to quantify how big of a problem certain aspects of what's occurring within the office actually is. And so you have to have that ability to zoom in and zoom out, as we say in our organization, to fully understand the whole spectrum of behaviors within the organization. And once you understand that, then you can start thinking about, okay, I think we can plan in this direction, but then how do we deal with these 
instances or these things that are part of our business, because as you mentioned earlier, you're trending data over time. And so you can see and quantify how often those become uh, become issues. Right. So but from a, a business unit perspective or just even from a, a general business point of view, when you're looking to transition to a more flexible, more modern sort of workplace where and I don't know if you guys were one to one or if you were if you were already in a shared work environment before the pandemic. It was a mix. Um, the European teams were about 80 uh, percent agile shared seating. Uh, Asia Pacific was ramping up pretty rapidly around that. Um, U.S. always kind of lags behind on that. And so it's typically only the sales organizations that are getting to more of a shared environment and have kind of expressed a need and interest for a variety of different spaces. But one of the things that we were able to find going into the pandemic, we started doing a lot of focus groups with employees, kind of getting kind of their concerns or needs. And at the end, actually brought in an architect to lay out a floor plan with 3D objects and so asking them, for your team in your neighborhood, what do you need? And they started adding more whiteboards, more spaces, and each time chipping away at the number of desks. And said, well, the footprint doesn't change. You've now reduced your desks. What do we do about that? At that point, it was actually the teams that said, hey, I I think we can share because if we have the flexibility of having our individual desk at home, all we really need is make sure there is still individual space, but our focus is on convenience and collaboration. So they, and this was technical teams that we typically wouldn't have focused on in the past, were now saying, yes, they could actually share. That's pretty cool. I like the concept, too, of just kind of like the kit of parts where you give give the – the teams, the ability to basically create their workspace where they come to the same conclusion that they don't really need the individual workspaces that they, you know, fought for very, you know, very much so before sort of understanding that, well, we don't really, we need this kind of space more than we need that kind of space. And it becomes easier for them to to give it up. But that leads to the next question is, when you're going through the change management, because this is a huge change management project initiative. I don't know if there's ever going to be an end because projects have an end date, but I don't know if if workplace will ever have an end date. Um, How do you manage that change even from like a a workforce perspective? Like I think about a company where I worked at where they actually tracked work styles in an SAP, right? So you were designated a work style based on the frequency that you came to the office. It didn't mean that, you know, if you were considered remote and therefore you never came to the office that you weren't allowed in the office, but it allowed for different considerations and being able to track it in a system like SAP. Did your company do the same thing or what were some of the things that you did to track or to manage it from a workforce perspective? Yeah, I'll kind of touch on the the kind of employee profiles um, first. I mean, Back many years ago and first went out and did a kind of full world view of a company and tried to break it down into work styles and work with HR to get all the different job families broken into seven different um, fam- job families and profiles. Uh, we thought we were really making great progress. But when we started sharing this with teams, arguments would break out of, well, I'm not really a, a six, I'm kind of a seven, or I'm kind of depending on which phase of project I'm, I'm a three or four. So all the conversation was around, whether they are in the right profile. And so quickly realized that it was difficult to describe that to employees. So we moved just to a um, XY coordinates and did a four square and said, okay, it's a scatter plot. 
you're going to fall more in one quadrant than another. It doesn't mean that you're that profile, but your tendency is more towards that. Much easier to describe and kind of talk them through that, um, again, pick on sales and marketing. You're highly external mobile. When you come to the office, um, you're also internally mobile. Therefore, you're much more suited to having a variety of spaces, having mobile technology, and we can help you with that process of transitioning to that environment. And so getting into then how do you actually relay this information in kind of spoon size um, pieces of create a wiki, do some um, fun animated videos so they can consume it in small bites and over time. And if there's things that are not working well, you can kind of reinforce those in kind of a fun, playful way and get them to feedback what's working, where their gaps are, so that each person kind of follow their own journey to kind of a new way of working. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the uh, the conversation about the the scatter plot and kind of the matrix because it again it takes me back to like my my early days of workplace strategy and I remember I could still visualize it, you know, having a, a a matrix where you had the the high and low or the low and high collaborator, right? So that's kind of a a spectrum of are you you know either one or the other, and then on the other spectrum it was the dependency on the office. And so based on the frequency that you came into the office and the percent of time that you were actually collaborating when you were in the office, those were the two factors that for many organizations back in the 2000s, which was what really dictated what your work style actually was. So you could be in the office every day, not collaborating. You were considered what we would call an anchor and you basically get an assigned desk. And those would be like your administrative assistants, like people that aren't really sort of not necessarily contributing from a business perspective from but they're not participating in meetings like other other people are. And then on the opposite side of it is you've got people who are 100% remote uh uh so they never come into the office and uh they could, they're either high or they're low collaborators. And so those would be the offshore sort of their you know way over that. It doesn't mean that they never collaborate, but the likelihood of them collaborating is slim to nil. And those were decisions around the technology that was required to support those types of workers. And I think I love the point that you made about, you know, people struggling with like the categorization of like, well, I'm a six, no, I'm a seven, but then I could be a three or I could be a two. They get hung up on sort of the fixed grouping that you give them or the fixed naming convention that you give them versus this thing of it's just a generalization of from a planning perspective is to know where and how do I allocate my space to support various needs of people. And what was always interesting was that middle ground of like the mobile that were out of the office the majority of the time, but came in from time to time. And the people that were in the office the majority of the time, but rarely sat at their desk because they were constantly moving around and working with different teams or whatever in the organization. And that usually accounted for about 50 to 60 percent of the workforce. Like you rarely had people that were coming in and sitting at their desk five days a week, eight hours a day. And then you had the remotes that, again, they came in maybe once a quarter, once a year, if even. Right. And so it was like we don't really have to worry about those types of people. But it was that middle group or category of mobile workers which is still very much the group of people today because that's where you get all of the variation, right? You've got people that are highly mobile, that are internally mobile versus externally mobile, and then their needs are very different in terms of how they interact with each other. Add to that the fact that now you've got hybrid on top of that because now there's 
the people that would have come into the office every day are now also working from home and relying more so on technology. And so it's just kind of complicated things that much more. Right. But yeah. Do you think that that whole sort of matrix idea or the quadrants, what should be the comparatives in your opinion? Like, should it still be based on the frequency of the office and the level of collaboration? I mean, that's what organizations are saying is the reason why com- people need to come back to the office is they need to, to collaborate. Um, do you think that that's still relevant or do you think that there's something else that might be more fitting based on what's happening right now? I think it's just more complicated that you've got a wider range of, of kind of teams and when people need to get together, how often, particularly um I mean, even going into the pandemic, we're getting more remote teams. You find there's certain talent elsewhere in the world, or you need to have fast sprints. Even for some of our data analytics, what we do is all the data went through Europe first, so they can actually transform it um, according to GDPR. They ship it to us. We start to work on it. We could ship it to APAC. And so within 24 hours, we can actually um, come up with some fantastic results relying on that. So suddenly teams are now virtual by the nature of either time zone or just hiring talent where they're at. So it gets much more challenging to think about what that means to be in the office. And are you really going to get everyone in the office? Even pre-pandemic, you think about you have your big team summits. Not everyone could come. There was always some that, well, I have a wedding or got sick at the last minute. And you get 80 percent of the group that would come together. You always had a couple of virtual participants. Now that virtual participant um, population has grown, and so it's almost a default that you have to assume that at least a third of your team is probably going to be virtual. So how do you include them? And I think at least during the pandemic, we've all had the opportunity to be the person on the end of the call that didn't have a great experience, whereas I I worked for 10 years from home part of the pandemic and was always trying to figure out ways that I could insert myself into the conference room and actually get a word in through the phone when everyone else is in person. It was incredibly hard to do, and people didn't have the etiquette to stop and say, oh, did we get input from everyone in the meeting, including those that are virtual? Now I think there's much more ability and thought around that. And, of course, now we also are using video, so you can kind of see or raise a hand and signify that you are participating and want to have a comment in there. So it, it releases some of that pressure on trying to get everyone to be in person. Yeah, and I think that's a that's a really good point, because that's one of the things that I always struggle with is when organizations are pushing for, you know, people have to come back to the office because of, you know, collaboration and innovation. It feels like it's being very narrow minded because of the fact that you've got the globalization of work You've got teams like literally scattered, especially if you're a global company, you're going to have teams scattered across the globe. I've also worked in a similar situation where work goes around the globe. And so it's kind of this there's a coolness factor to that where, you know, what would have taken two weeks to do, you literally can do in 24 hours or 36 hours just by going through different time zones. And so you're like, wow, the velocity of getting work done is actually pretty cool when you just basically pass the baton onto the next team and they just continue with the work and then it comes back to you and the next morning you're like wow we're we're ready to go like we're we can we can move things a lot faster versus the sort of old sort of longer process of you know everyone being just in in an office and everyone meaning just the local people because there's always going to be that element of virtual participation which existed before right mm-hmm. so yeah i think it's it's really interesting as we talk about the fact that 
you know, the world of work has changed long before the pandemic. I think just with the advent of technology, I think the realization of how much work has changed just came into focus for everyone to say, why am I going to the office every day? Because I can do this just as well from home. I don't need to physically be in the office, but the the nudge or the push to get people back to the office because of collaboration, innovation, and, and team camaraderie, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think one other add in there is I have three children that were between high school and college during the pandemic. So they all had to sh- shift to different learning styles, a lot of asynchronous. And so when that, that population starts into the workforce, they've had to kind of grow up in that environment where how do you get team projects done when you can't get together? You have to be um, virtual. You have to be asynchronous. So I think education is starting to go through a lot of that evolution as well, which means future workforce is really going to come in with a different mindset, a different approach. And how do we absorb that? And part of it is there is a bit of a push and pull. I think about a marriage when you a good marriage requires that everyone kind of gives and takes and you find the best uh, middle ground for each party. So thinking about uh, young employees coming in, they want to have mentorship and engagement. And the best people to do that are those that are tenured and most likely be working from home. Yeah. And saw that over this internship season where we had all these interns come together, really looking for the managers who weren't there. So in their own devices, they found uh, actually the one uh, fully agile building and said, oh, we'll all congregate here. So they started coming together um, and fully activated the space. And then as intern season moved away and some of those came on board as uh, full-time employees, they continue those relationships and continue to sit together, even though they came from different teams, because they're forming their own community. And I think that was really fascinating. The, the question is, is it a new community, new culture? And is that culture aligned to um, the existing company culture, or is it divergent and potentially going to create some um, rift that they're in the void, they're creating a culture that didn't exist before and may not align with uh, kind of their mentors? Well, it's interesting that we're talking about this because last night I came across a quote on Facebook. Actually, somebody posted something and it it kind of made me pause for thought. So as we we've been talking about like, you know, or, you know, company CEOs, you know, mandating their people come back or trying to push people back to the office. So the quote was uh, somebody said, I'm so happy I had a childhood before technology took over. (laughs) Right. And so it made me think about how different the childhood experience is today and it has been for a number of years since technology came came to the forefront right like kids today are literally born with technology in their hands but yet when you think about work it's kind of like taking a bit of a well even education for that matter it's kind of like taking a bit of a step back right is is that your your sort of early years you know you're exposed to whether it's good or bad is a whole a separate discussion but just this thing of you know you're you've got an ipad or you know you have access to technology phone tv whatever it is that you're you have access to that in my day we didn't even have access to television i mean we did but it was like nobody really watched television kids were outside playing right you just you played a, a you know bike tag until like midnight or whatever and it wasn't a big deal you don't see that anymore like kids now are playing with their video games or you know it's very very like the the whole sort of childhood experience of being outside is not the same like it was when we were growing up because they're so absorbed in the technology that they now have access to. And so it made me wonder when you were talking about the internships, is that is that 
community sort of culture building to sort of fill that void, a result of the lack of enablers within organizations, because organizations are still pushing for sort of old traditional ways of working. When you come into a workplace and you, like, I don't know if you've probably experienced this where, you know, you work in a company that's got like all the coolest you know, tools and gadgets and everything. So you're like running on the latest version of, uh, of you know, Microsoft or whatever. If you're using Google, you know, in your organization and you've got like all the all the fancy tools that you have. And then you go to another company who's like 20 years behind in their technology enablement. That's a huge drain on productivity. Right. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of makes you wonder is like, is that the same thing of what's happening when people are saying, oh, you need people in the office for mentorship and internship it's kind of like but why like there's technology that's there kids go to school they're handing in their papers digitally there's a lot of digital interaction that's going on already when they're from when they're starting in elementary school right through high school university and then you go into the working world and it's 100 percent face-to-face because that's how you build relationships because that's how you collaborate and so on and so forth so there feels like there's a bit of a a disconnect there there is, but I think um, there is value in bringing those two worlds together because you think about as much as technology changes, um, it's typically the kids that are going to be most involved in uh, what's new and um, trending. And so as kind of a more tenured employee, if you come in, you're going to get um, kind of that mentorship on here's how to use technology, here's tips and tricks to be more efficient uh, or to catch up with the latest product that's been rolled out internally. And then in turn, um, you can talk through of like what's what's kind of typical work etiquette of, yes, there's times that you can take a break and trying to get through the process of what does it mean to work? How do you balance that? How do you engage with people? And I think there's also been a little bit of a shift in ticking the tech side of what talent they focus on. Because for a long time, it was you look at kind of the all the top schools, the MITs and things like that to get your kind of top tier talent. But when you dig into kind of the education behind that, we often find is it's highly competitive and you're looking to be the best individual. And then you step into the office, you can't be the best individual. You have to be the best team player if you're going to succeed. And that's a really tough transition. And so even some of our organizations, we're starting to look at, let's not go to those schools because one, there's too much competition, it's driving up the price. And we spent a lot of time trying to attract that talent. Whereas ultimately, um, looking through kind of the HR data was finding that it was some of the, especially a lot of the younger employees didn't come from those schools, had really strong skill sets, and also were more likely to stick around longer. So you had better employees if you stepped a tier down. So they started focusing on how do you look at what are the traits and skills that provide the most value to the company and forget about where they came from and figure out how you've um, attract and train that those type of individuals. So a lot of shifting and, and kind of um, thought that happened before what happens now and, and what's that transition look like. This is really, really, really fascinating. So here's just another thing that I'm thinking of is as we, we talk through this, it's kind of like, again, just thinking about past experiences and, you know, you, you bring information forward when you suddenly have data at your fingertips and I'm I'm a data nerd. I'll be the first one to to admit it. And it's exciting, right? Because it's like, wow, this is really cool that you get to 
understand things that you never could have imagined before. And so you get like super excited about that and you think, okay, what can we do with this data? Like, especially whether you're trying to solve a problem or, you know, you're trying to add some context to at least helping the, the organization understand the direction potentially or the options with respect to directions that they might want to take. Um, what's, what's fascinating to me though is how a lot of the times it's a huge letdown. You bring that information forward and they're like, yeah, that's nice. <laughs> and then it just falls, it falls flat. Why have you experienced that? And, and if so, like, why do you think that that, that actually happens? Uh, it does it definitely happens. Um, certainly early in the pandemic, uh, I was, was kind of getting ready for that first policy announcement of what's, what's the strategy going to be from a corporate perspective. And so preparing for that is okay. Well, let's go take a look at 2019. So I had the team really run through and crunch a full year of 2019 data, pull it down, look at by, um, kind of region, by leader, uh, days of the week, how many days, that type of thing. So, really succinct nuggets of this is what it meant um, to be pre, um, pre-pandemic. That's why I talked about it. Three to four days was kind of the regular attendance, and it was Monday through Thursday. And, yep, didn't didn't evolve. The original quote was, hey, we're, an in, we're a high-attending culture. We're going back full-time. It's like, well, okay, that's that's not going to land well. It didn't. So came back and said, ah, we can, we can do a two day a week from home. It's like, well, okay, that replicates what people were already really doing. Just put structure around it, but things have changed. So just having to kind of go through that learning process and then thinking that there's starting to be traction now that the pendulum swinging back of, Hey, the economy is down. There's layoffs. Therefore people will do what we say and missing the fact that with this dispersion, there's significant numbers that um, have a either significant commute or are too far to physically commute. Therefore, they can't return or that that return is going to probably make or break the situation. Yeah. And is it worth it um, to go that route? Um, you, you're going to disrupt morale. You're going to um, ultimately probably take away from productivity. Because now you're getting people in a car, so most of the, or a good portion of the workday now is in a car, likely in stressful traffic. So they show up, yeah. not ready to work, but to, to decompress from the commute. Then they've got to work, and they've got to focus on when do I need to leave so I can actually get home to be home for dinner or for um, eating activities. And it puts a lot more strain on the workforce. Yeah, and those are all valid points, especially when it comes to change change management. I mean, it's it comes down to, you know, there's things that, yes, the executive team might want for the organization, whether it's, you know, supported by data or not. It's kind of like this is what we want to do. And then you kind of wait and see and see if people comply to what those wants are, which we've seen is not actually happening. And, and there's all kinds of speculation about, well, you know, the economy continues to go south that, you know, it's going to put companies in a position where people are going to they're going to go back to the office because they can mandate that even more so. But I kind of wonder about that as well, because having gone through the pandemic, I think a lot of people came to the realization. This is my own personal opinion, but I think a lot of people came to the realization of the lifestyle that they live is dependent on their employability, right? Or kind of like the fact that the, the company that they work for determines that for them. And that's a scary thing. When you have no control over that, like we all experienced through the pandemic, you start to get creative with, okay, maybe I need to start thinking about, you know, doing something that 
won't put me in that predicament going forward. And so I don't think the control that organizations had before is the same now, because I think people will just be like, okay, if I'm an experienced person, I'll just go at it on my own. I've, I've got several friends and friends of friends that have done that where they've lost their jobs and they're like, oh, I'm just going to go and work as a consultant and I'll just pick and choose the customers that I want to work with and work the hours that I want to work and just make enough to pay the bills. Right? It's not no longer about climbing the corporate ladder or striving for success, whatever, whatever or however people define that. And so it's interesting when you think about the the whole sort of making work human, uh, which is it's comical to me because it's like, well, what was it before? Like, you know, why was there this this disassociation with being human in the workplace? And the idea that, you know, work isn't in the business of, you know, caring about people's lifestyles or, or well-being or whatever. It's kind of like, but now it is. And so you'd be foolish not to think about all of the elements that impact people's lives day to day, even though you spend a ton of time working there's still an element, of, a, a significant element of why we even exist in the first place if it's not to work. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's it, people had a chance to, one, realize life could be short and it's worth taking risks. And what are we doing this for? Are we, are we living to work or working to live? Yes, exactly. And also just seeing kind of how family dynamics can change and shift. And so I live in the Seattle market and prices going up, it's getting more crowded. And for a while, I had a number of people that just would say, hey, I'm, I'm going to quit. I'm going to move to Nashville or other places in the country. It's like, oh, what are you going to do there? Don't know. Just it sounds like a great place to be right now. I'll figure it out. And very quickly, they settled in. Cost of living was better. It's a smaller location. We're able to find work and are incredibly happy with that shift. And so thinking about kind of all that movement, there is more of a um, focus on trying to find that work-life balance or, I mean, it's really work-life integration and what that really means at an individual level. The other thing I think that comes out of it, which unfortunately is that data piece that is um, kind of the qualitative that gets missed, is the opportunities that show up through some of those employee stories. The best one I came across is we were kind of surveying to find out um, how work from home was going had um, a young mother in um, South Africa write that um, she and many other young mothers moved away from the villages into the city so they could get um, kind of higher paying jobs that they could send the money back and support family. When the pandemic hit, they were able to move back with family, continue their jobs, see their um, family full time. And they said, gee, if we could continue doing this, I now have the money um, to pay for a house to put all of the family in. I'm with my family, so I'm much happier, and now I'm more bonded to the company because it enabled me to basically have a more fully fulfilling life. It's like, this is fantastic. If those are the few mothers that made that shift, there's probably a great talent pool that wasn't able to or wasn't willing to make that sacrifice. Why wouldn't you want to enable that? And particularly with, I mean, we're launching satellites every day. Internet will soon be ubiquitous, and so people can truly get access to the Internet anywhere so you can tap you know, amazing talent wherever they're at. Yeah, so. no, and, and that's actually, I think, probably the the best comment uh, in all of this is is really just that as you think about the role that real estate has played, we think obviously that's what we're talking about. But you sort of take a step back and you look at 
you know, the money that's being spent to support a way of working that people have spoken. They, they're voting with their feet every day, right? And so it becomes a question of you force the issue uh, because, I don't know, because, <laughs> or you sort of take a step back and think, you know, how can we improve the lives of our employees and, and, and basically be more selective of how you spend the money that you would have spent on real estate to keep an office to basically keep your workforce happy. Because as you said, is, is that if your employees are happy, they're going to be more productive. You're more productive. You're going to generate more revenue and everybody wins in the end. And I think that's really the key here is that it's not about whether the office is dead or not. It's about, hey, there's a smarter way for companies to think about the role that real estate plays, yes, that's not to say make a decision to eliminate all of your real estate. There's still going to be a need for real estate to some degree, but we don't need to be gluttons like we have been where we never even looked at real estate because it was just a necessary evil. Now it's there's so many issues in society that it's like companies can be smarter about how they choose to spend their money to serve some of these programs. Like you mentioned DEI, there's sustainability, there's, you know, community building, there's all kinds of things that companies can do where they can still elevate their brand, just doing it a different way. It's not just by slapping a logo on a building. It's by actually participating in society and doing it in a way that your employees become ambassadors of your brand. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't think that there's any better way for companies to be successful going forward. I fully agree. Probably the best example of that is uh, my first workplace project in the Netherlands. Took a while to get it off the ground, but it really kind of changed the, the sales office. So leadership rethought kind of how they engage customers, went through a full transformation, started listening, and realized they actually had much better partnership, higher sales in a down economy. And then because they had such a successful kind of transformation, the government said, hey, can you help us around change management at a country level? So then you're starting to, like, rethink how all this comes together. And you're right. It, it rebrands the company also starts to create that purpose within a company because most people aren't going for a paycheck. They're looking for a meaningful role that gives them purpose and meaning and has a paycheck. So if you can kind of blend all that together, you're, you're building a strong tie with your employee base. Totally agree. Kevin, I uh, can't believe the hour is already up. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you again for your time today and for being a guest on our show. Yeah, thank you so much, Sandra. Great to see you again. Thank you.